0: if you have been around for a bit in the world of rare books, then you will certainly remember A.B. Bookman's Weekly, a magazine that was begun in the late 1940s as a vehicle for advertising used in rare books. Both books wanted, that is, books dealers were looking for, for their customers in those simple pre-book finder days, and books for sale by dealers and others. Saul M. Malkin founded A.B. Bookman's Weekly in 1948, and with his wife, Mary Ann O'Brien Malkin, edited it very successfully for a generation. The Malkins sold A.B. in the early 1970s, and it continued in business under the direction of Jacob Chernowsky until 1999, when it ceased operation superseded by the Internet. The magazine's editorial content was of interest to the overlapping worlds of used and rare bookselling, research, librarianship, and book collecting. Its front matter consisted of trade news of interest to dealers, collectors, and librarians alike, and it included a celebrated column written by Jacob Blank, as in B-A-L, Jacob Blank, providing news, musings, and gossip about the trade. In 1984, Marianne Malkin began to support an annual lecture in honor of her husband Saul Malkin's contributions to the antiquarian book trade. Michael Winship gave the first Saul M. Malkin lecture in bibliography under rare book school auspices at Columbia University in December 1985 in time for Saul Malkin to congratulate him on his performance, though Malkin himself was too ill to attend. Indeed, Saul M. Malkin died in 1986, a few months after Winship had delivered the lecture. Malkin lecturers over the years have included many names familiar to this audience. Indeed, a number of them in this audience. Gur Allen, Nicholas Barker, William P. Barlow, Jr., Robert Darnton, Christopher DeHamel, Lucian Goldschmidt, Selby Kiefer, Catherine kais leib Paul Needham, William Reese, Kenneth Rendell, Bernard M. Rosenthal, Anthony Rhoda, Justin G. Schiller, Roger Stoddard, G. Thomas Tancel, and Marjorie wins. Marianne Malkin regrets very much that she cannot be here tonight. This is the first of the lectures that she has missed. She is 91. She fell and broke her hip this spring. And though she is doing very well indeed, she's still a little wary of crowds of large, boisterous people like you. But she sends her regards and regrets. Our speaker this evening is Miriam Foote, internationally celebrated as a student of the history of bookbinding. For many years, on the staff of the British Library in London, and long concerned with education for the history of the book at London University and elsewhere. She's been teaching the history of decorative bookbinding at Rare Book School since 1993, and though she has informed me that she does not wish to continue teaching her present course here, She says that she is working on a new one to debut perhaps next year or the year after. Tonight's lecture, "Make Haste, But Slowly, Binders at Work, is a preview of the sort of subject matter with which her new course is likely to concern itself. It is a great pleasure to introduce the 2004 Saul M. and Mary M. obrien Malkin Lecturer in Bibliography, Miriam Foote. Thank you,
1: Terry. I'm most grateful to Mrs. Malkin and to Terry for having invited me here, and I'm only sorry that Mrs. Malkin can't be here. Um, Terry has also thoroughly frightened me by this roll call of luminaries with which he started um, in whose shining presence I will be like a faint shadow. For over a century, bookbinding historians have looked at bookbindings and described and identified what they could see. Very, very few have considered precisely how binders set to work to produce their plain, gilt, tooled or painted, marbled or spotted edges and covers. However, from the 11th century onwards, bookbinders themselves and others interested in their craft have described how binders worked, what tools they used, why, in what way and in what order. And these descriptions in Arabic, Latin and several modern West European languages, in manuscript and in print, vary widely in depth, in detail, in extent and in reliability. Although they are commonly referred to as binding manuals, it is somewhat misleading to call them this. These descriptions are not manuals in the sense of handbooks or reference books. A number are indeed technical, detailed, step-by-step instructions of how books are bound, sometimes of how they used to be bound, more often how they ought to be bound, describing in often painstaking detail all the slow and laborious actions hundred and fifty-three of them, if we believe Prediger, which is the most elaborate and most detailed of these manuals, that are needed to convert to convert the sheets, whether folded quires or whole printed sheets, to bound copy ready copies ready for the bookseller. Moreover, it is a process that cannot be hurried. As the binder Lenne says in the didactic poem La Relure, make haste but slowly, do not lose heart, repeat your work incessantly and you shall learn our craft. The best and most reliable of these manuals were written by master binders for each other or for their journeymen, or for their apprentices or as the first one I will show you, if the machine is on which does isn't supposed to be hold on, I'm holding this the wrong way down, so that's why it doesn't work um, by apprentices as a memoir, and often a very clear distinction is made between what is the ideal and what is current practice they cover not only the way the book is constructed And you can see here how the sheets are folded, beaten, and sewn on the left, showing the different methods in different countries at different times. They describe how the sewn sections are pressed, rounded, and backed, provided with end leaves and end bands, how the boards are cut according to various uh, patterns to get the most out of a piece of board and how they lay, are laced on and finally how the book is covered. But they also go into detail about cutting and decorating the edges and they give a range of methods in decorating the covers. We get recipes for making adhesives and for dyes and colors with elaborate instructions how to use these to stain spot or marble the leather or vellum, or the edges of the leaves, of course, which is part of the process, and several manuals give detailed instructions for tooling in blind or in gold, explaining how to handle uh, and to heat the finishing tools with or without gold leaf or lesser metals, as well as telling the less inventive craftsmen patterns he can make and how he can achieve them. Many of the detailed manuals list the materials that can be used, but also all the necessary equipment and tools which are frequently illustrated, as you can see on this plate, thereby providing better understanding um, not only of what tools were actually used and for what purpose, but also what they are called in the different languages, because it is the variety of languages and the often arcane terminology that makes these manuals really rather difficult to use. Sometimes they make comparisons between foreign habits and local habits, usually, of course, in favour of local habits. We read about the organisation of the trade, of guild rules and practices, of legislation concerning the trade, particularly in France, where the trade was very heavily regulated. And we read about the relationship between binders and booksellers, and about contacts with prospective owners of the book. And in the foreground of this delightful um, print, which is inserted in a manuscript, we see a binder actually presenting the owner with the final product. We read about costs and prices, and when reading these you feel yourself drawn into the everyday life and work of this particular corner of book production. For the purpose of this evening's talk, I would like to concentrate on what we can learn about the decorative techniques that the binders employed, especially during the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries. As the eighteenth-century German Anweisung zur Buchbinderkunst says, I quote, the art of bookbinding has no limits for the craftsman. He does the most ordinary work and yet has enough opportunities to discover new ways. Let us start with his ordinary work. Decorating the edges of the leaves seems to have been part of the forwarding job, at least in the 17th and 18th centuries, and almost all descriptions go to great lengths over edge treatments. Edges could be plainly coloured, usually red, but other colours such as green and yellow are also mentioned, and black was used for certain service books or for funeral sermons. Most usually, the edges of the leaves were sprinkled, as you see here at the bottom of the pile. The binder would put the books, often several at a time, edges uppermost in the press, smooth the edges, and then dip his brush in in the paint and hit it! on a hammer, on an iron bar, or even simply tapping it with his finger so that a shower of small droplets would fall onto the tightly closed edges. Red is used most frequently, but red and green, and as you here see, blue and red were also used, taking care to let the first color dry before applying the second. Zeitler in his Buchbinder Philosophie calls sprinkling with red the prettiest and most elegant. A plain red edge, he says, is for peasants. Green is very common and yellow is old fashioned. Now all this was done not just for aesthetic reasons, but because a coloured or sprinkled edge wouldn't show the dirt. Both Zeitler and the Anweisung zur Buchbinderkunst say that the binder may be asked to colour the edges of several tracts that have been bound together a different colour, so that the owner can distinguish them easily, seeing which tract we may be at. Various ways of marbling edges are also described. Now the word marbling, when applied both to edges and to leather covers, seems to mean a whole variety of decorating techniques from making spots in one or more colors, to painting the edges, to what we now would understand by marbling, following the same procedures that were used for marbled paper. Painting the edges to look like marbling was done most commonly in blue, using indigo in in paste, uh, and then pulling the color with your fingers into a flame-like or circular pattern. Sometimes a piece of wood with two or three teeth or a stick could be employed to make a wavy pattern into the coloured paste. Brediger even suggests that tracing the pattern from marbled paper onto the edges and then painting it in the same colours would also be a good idea. And he gives instructions for edges that are hard marbled and part gilt, as you see here. Most 18th century bookbinders' manuals describe proper edge marbling, although, according to Dudin, in France this was not done by the binder, but by the man who makes marbled paper, and a wide variety of marbles is mentioned. It also seems to have been a specifically French habit, to marble the edges first, and then to gild them, which was done by the gilder. And the, as the professions in France were very, very strictly divided, just imagine the inconvenience for the binder. You bind a book, then you've got to take it to the man who makes marbled paper to have the edges gilded, uh, to have the edges marbled. Then you've got to take them to the gilder to have the edges gilt, and then also possibly to the gilder to have the covers tooled. But you couldn't do all this in one workshop. When finished, the coloured, sprinkled or marbled edges are rubbed with a tooth or a very smooth stone till they shine. And you see the little gentleman on the left doing just that. He who can paint, says the Andaizung, can paint all kinds of pictures and flowers straight onto the edges. Other German manuals mention painted edges, while gilt, gilt and gophers gophering is tooling on the edge, and gilt and painted edges are also described. Now, edge gilding goes back quite a way, in fact, at least to the middle of the 15th century. But the earliest written recipe I have found occurs in the late, in a late 15th century manuscript, which is now at the Wellcome Library in London. And it's a mixture, it's an extraordinary compilation. It's a mixture of secrets, chemical, medical and technical tracts and recipes, written partly in Latin and partly in Dutch. And it includes one for gilding bindings. And as it is so early, Uh, for a description. I have translated it for you. It says, take clean egg white and put it on. Then when it is still wet, lay on the gold and let it dry. Then burnish it and work the gold with an engraving tool, which is very interesting because that could refer, possibly does refer, to the frame." Uh, which for a gopherd edge in the Dutch Latin, Latin manuscripts and 15th century is quite early. Several 16th century manuals describe edge gilding and so does a well-known manu- man- manual by a man called Anselmus Faust who writes in 1612. He uses very finely shaven Armenian bowl mixed with water and rubs it on the edge, leaving it, he says, for the duration of one paternoster. Now, he wrote for monks, so this makes perfectly good sense. Before then, rubbing the edge with paper strips to smooth it and burnish it, he covers it then with egg white, and while this is very wet, he lays on the gold. When dry, he burnishes it twice, and he then continues, I quote, If you want to stipple the edges, take care not to hammer in your punch too deep. Towards the end of the 17th century, Christoph Weigel refers to gilt edges decorated with all kinds of leaves, flowers and picture work, something which is taken up in several later manuals. The Unwising says, this looks as if it is chased by a goldsmith. Settler, although not keen on gilt edges, which he considers to be an irresponsible and unnecessary waste of precious metal, gives nevertheless several recipes. But he concludes, overall, scholars are not concerned with having the edges of their books gilt, and in some books the gilt is worth more than the book itself. According to an anonymous commentator on Zeitler, um, who mentions also the use of mixed metal, called swish gold, for edge gilding. But he says he blames the penny-pinching owner, who doesn't want to pay for real gold, rather than what is said to be the case, the binder who cheats. He too fulminates against the use of real gold, as he thinks this can be put to better purposes, adding, I quote, one is totally blinded when one encounters so many thousand churchgoers with guild hymn books. And what would happen if a girl did not have a guild hymn book? According to the Anweisung, many women would be ashamed to bring a book to church, the edges of which had not been gilt, Gregorius, in his handbook for Burgle and Bowen, expresses doubt as well. I quote, "Guild edges are for important people, not for peasants. Within these spoiled times, every peasant girl who extorts from her master or mistress a good wage wants to have, purely for show, a hymn book with gilded edges. Gold books and hearts of stone is the harsh judgment. The earliest really elaborate description of gophering edges I have found is in Matthäus Vogt's pattern book, printed in Ulm in 1644, the title page of which you see here. It's extremely rare and there's only one known copy of this. It consists mainly of engravings with only two leaves of letterpress. Vogt, who was a binder, um, was often asked by master binders whom he met on his journeys how to make tooled patterns on edges. And in order to accommodate these um, people who asked him, he wrote and illustrated a book based on edges decorated by himself with finishing tools on the gold ground. The engravings show edges elaborately tooled with flowers, branches, birds, wavy patterns, little hearts and for catholic books with the name of Maria, Jesus over the sacred monogram which you can see. He suggests special patterns for top and tail edges as well as large composite designs for the fore edges of folios. And one does meet such patterns, and of course more modest ones, on the edges of German and religious books in particular. Another task that was carried out as part of the normal day-to-day work of the binder was the titling of the spine, at first on the label from the 16th century onwards, and then straight onto the spine leather from the early 17th century. Different kinds of bindings are provided with their spine titles in different ways, but usually and certainly for leather covered bindings, a red goatskin title label you can just make out here, is stuck on, followed if need be by a label for the volume number. This label can then be lettered, either as is traditional, with handheld lettering tools engraved in brass heated and impressed through gold leaf, or, already in the 18th century, with printer's type held in a typeholder, And you see one illustrated on the right-hand bottom corner. Now, the method of lettering with a typeholder seems to have been extremely common, much more common than I would ever taken in, and several manuals illustrate such typeholders, explaining how the letters are fitted in and secured and warning them, warning uh, the binders against making the letters too hot as the type metal may melt. Sometimes, of course, the uh, label is not used and the title is tooled straight onto the spine. And according to the French manual written by Dudin, the English do this quite often. Whether that's borne out by the evidence, um, I'm not so sure. If no other decoration is required, the leather covers are often glared, that is painted with egg white, three times, and then rubbed with a woolen cloth and polished with a warm polishing arm. However, very often, more embellishment was desirable and the covers themselves would be decorated in a variety of ways. Here again we find the ordinary and the more complex work. To start with the simple. Leather could be dyed in a variety of colours. Even Badis, in an Arabic treatise of the 11th century, gives recipes for dyeing leather red, green, yellow, blue or black. The late 15th century manuscript in Latin and Dutch, which I just mentioned, includes a recipe for colouring white leather red, and this is what the result would be, and also uh, a recipe for colouring black. And then um, there are a number of Dutch 16th century recipe books, that give all sorts of ways of dyeing leather and parchment in a variety of colors. And Faust mentions coloring vellum and leather with several layers of paint, while an English broadsheet of the end of the 17th century specifies the use of copper as water to make the leather dark or even black. Coloring or varnishing vellum are often mentioned and several recipes are given in most manuals. Jeffrey Smith in his Laboratory or School of Arts of 1738 explains how to make green, white, yellow and red transparent vellum. Now this is interesting because we had to wait until 50 years later for James Edward to patent what we always have thought was his invention of making vellum transparent, sprinkling and marbling is done according to Richelieu's dictionnaire with a small brush with red or green paint. And the man at the top of the the left-hand top of the slide, you can see him doing it. He has a book in the press with the cover stretched out, and again he hits. The paintbrush, and um, I'd want a hammer on an iron bar or on his finger to make the drops fall on the open covers. But Richelieu also says that if you want to do proper marbling, you use aquafortis or nitric acid. Several German manuals discuss sprinkled calf, and those sprinkled in black with a gold-tooled spine are invariably called French bindings. Zeitler is rather dismissive. I quote, One can allow the French the discovery of sprinkling sheep's leather with shoe black. That's nothing special, and every book binders or shoemaker's apprentice would equally well have had the honor. Moreover, these are the most slovenly bindings, and they deteriorate quickly. The only good thing about him is some gold tooling on the spine. Prediger, who goes into extreme detail about everything he describes, talks about sprinkling with iron black, making spots on the leather with saffron, red and black, to remember tortoiseshell, painting to a ripple effect, or making cat's-paws designs with drops of lemon juice on a black ground. Alternating light and darkly sprinkled compartments with the use of stencils made of pasteboard is described in the Andai Zoom, and these are strongly reminiscent of what we find in London and Cambridge in the 18th century. pour, dipped in iron black, is used to make flame-like stains in imitation of marble, while red and yellow paints can be added for greater effect. For a different kind of marble, the covers are first painted with egg white, then bent inwards and coarsely sprinkled in black, followed by lemon juice, the, liquid run, the liquids running into each other, before the surplus is blotted off. As lemons are expensive, says Prediger, you can ask more for such marble bindings. But not too much, otherwise you will scare off the gentleman book lovers. In England, too, marbling means, really, coarse sprinkling or when vitriol is used in the mixture, mottling, as you see here. Owen calls it forming clouds with aqua or spirits of vitriol mixed with ink. James Colin in his manuscript Memorandum Book of 1754, 1755, gives several recipes for marbling leather, (coughs) such as, I quote, my brown for books, bound in calf with spot ashes, soaked and weakened with water, throwed on the book, standing on its fore edge, make the run of Prussian marble. And such patterns are very common in England in the 18th century. Several French manuals describe a whole range of sprinkling and marbling. and the Encyclopédie méthodique distinguish seven different ways of doing so, adding that although, I quote, marbling the covers is in fact decoration, the eyes are so used to it that the book seems unfinished without it, while the latter also points out how this process covers up imperfections in the leather. Sprinkled and marbled covers are almost always finished off either with a coat of varnish or more commonly with a layer of glare and a final polishing with a warm polishing iron or a burnishing tool. Already in the 11th century Ibn Badis has among his equipment irons for tooling and the Seville binder. Bakir al-Ishbili in his Art of Bookbinding written in Arabic at the end of the 12th century refers to the use of heated tools for gilding leather bindings. Finishing tools are listed in several Oxford and Cambridge 16th century bookbinders' inventories, and a contract between a Milanese and Italian publisher, bookseller and a local binder dating from before 1609, includes an inventory of the stock of binding equipment and tools to be used with smoke impressions of the finishing tools. Angellnes Faust describes how you tool a vellum cover of the book, putting the vellum on a piece of pasteboard and using a warm roll. If you want to do this with gold, Faust advises, Rub the vellum first with egg whites where you want the gold to be. Do not let it get too dry, but not too wet either, just so that it is no longer sticky. Then lay on the gold and roll it. But do not make your roll too hot. The drier the ground, the hotter the tool, and the wetter the vellum, the colder the tool. Faust also talks about tooling in blinds, And he then says, the leather needs to be damp and the roll must not be too hot. Other manuals mention also tooling in blinds, often when a book has been bound in leather over wooden boards. And we read about the use of the creaser, which is number 11 in this plate of tools. To make lines at both sides of the bands on the spine and at the edges of the covers. Then a roll is used, and that's again number eleven on this plate. Next to the lines, then another line with a creaser, and then another uh, another roll, um, and so it goes on, um, repeating the use of the creaser for lines and the use of a roll starting on the outside edges of the the covers and working inwards. And of course, depending on how large the book is, how often that pattern is repeated. But that's a very common description, um, mainly both in Dutch and in German. Prediger makes a very interesting suggestion. He says the French used blocks... With which to tool the whole spine compartments. Verdegger rather has it in for the French. Um, he thinks the Germans do things properly, and the French don't. And this idea of using a whole block to tool the spine compartment in one go um, is one of his ways of describing that the French really take very little trouble. Interestingly enough, the French manuals themselves do not describe this. And I didn't believe it, but very recently Nicholas Pickwood and I hit together on this example, um, a binding of about 1760, 1770, where indeed the spine compartments are decorated with a whole block, and once you get your eye in, um, you actually do find them. James Colin, the English binder too, uh, bought from a tool cutter in 1754, what he calls backs for a quarto, an octavo, and a duodecimo. And he quite clearly means, from the way he describes the use, blocks to decorate the spine compartments in one impression. The German manuals go either into more or into less detail when they are describing tooling in gold. Zeitler simply says, Floral leaf ornaments can be applied as you like. Nothing specific is described, but one simply follows the best examples. Adding cynically, besides, one usually covers the least good leather in most gold ornamentation, even if it's only brass or tin foil, while the best cordova skins are left black. He refers to the use of engraved blocks impressed through gold or silver leaf for which a large iron um, press is needed, which you see illustrated here, and he says this can be applied in the center of a book bound in pigskin. Other hand finishing tools can be used with or without gold but need to be heated, heated first. He then goes on to say measure everything carefully and be careful that the rolls fit neatly next to the lines and do not result in deranged or confused work. The need for tidiness in tooling is often repeated and several manuals give a close description of how you go about this, specifying the sequel sequence of lines and rolls, often specifying leafy rolls or what they call head rolls or portrait rolls. You know, the very common rolls with heads and medallion, like you see one here, which are common really all over Europe from the 16th century onwards. And sometimes uh, they even give details of how you measure the spaces in between, and then often they finish off with a block in the centre. According to Savary de Brulon, a French manual, ordinary bindings are only gilt on the spine and the outer edges of the covers. But extraordinary bindings have the whole of the covers, as well as the turn-ins and the doubleurs, if they are made of leather, tools in gold. And he says, often this kind of gilding is a kind of ornament in the form of a dartel or embroidery. made in borders round about. But, he says, we also find the coat of arms of the owner, either small in the spine compartment or large in the centre of the covers. Elucidating that the tools are engraved in relief either on a stamp or on a little wheel and are applied after having been reasonably heated on gold leaf laid on after the leather has been glared first, but while the glare is only partially dry. If you impress, he says, a coat of arms or something that needs a great deal of relief, you hit the tool with a hammer. Afterwards, the surplus gold is brushed off and collected to be reused in future. In this four-volume work, Predica discusses tooling at length, going into more detail in each successive volume. Depending on the kind of leather, he tools dry using what they call swish gold, which is a pale alloy with silver, which you see here in the centre, and as you can see, uh, because it's an alloy, it hasn't lasted well. Um, But depending on whether he uses triche gold, which he does dry, or leaf gold, which he um, uses on the still wet glare. And then he also specifies, with increasing precision, how to tool first the spine, followed by the edges of the boards and then the covers. The heat of the tool is discussed, as well as the importance of having a steady hand. He lays down exact rules for tooling of different formats, what rules should be used, how these are to be spaced, how these are to meet neatly at the corners. He also describes tooling with what the Bibles call gouges, curving lines, and, and again goes into great detail. And he provides tables to illustrate how to make a star-shaped ornament, dividing the covers first into quarters and then marking the center with a cross and indicating the points of the star and where they meet with a number of circles made with dividers. Gouges are used to create the familiar vellum bindings decorated with colorful compartments designs we also find on leather and everything is again carefully measured and marked before the tools are applied and the compartments are painted. This example shows a comparatively simple design but greater complexity could be achieved with more fractions and more whole and half circles. Sometimes the colours are indicated by writing them onto the pattern, as you see here, sometimes by shading them in, as he says, in the way they do for coats of arms. Tools could then be added according to taste and availability. Brediger also explains how to set black paint next to silver. And then he says, silver paint you can get from the gold beaters, but it needs to be mixed first with a thin solution of gum arabic or gum tragacanth. And the result you see here, on this red stained vellum binding of a manuscript prayer book of about 1720, its design closely following one illustrated by Preger, Prediger. Heidegger also advises that the owner should always be asked how elaborate he wants his book decorated. But, he says, I quote, the work has to be done according to the latest fashion, and the more splendid something looks, the more agreeable it is. You must fill the space with ornaments, make flowers and their stems, tooling the leaves on the stems closely together. According to mine." many of the surviving examples, such as this binding on a a Berlin Berger of about 1700. The Anweisung agrees with Prediger when stating, the more something is decorated, the better does it attract people and the easier it will be to find a purchaser. He says gold tooling should be combined with paints. And then I quote, star in the middle of the covers gives a book a particular elegance, especially when one half is painted black and the other half is tooled in gold and shows here how to do it. Gold's tooling on covers and spine is recommended because he says a library of this kind bestows much honour on its owner. The splendor that is added to books has reached such height that owners are no longer satisfied with gold-tooled patterns, but they want gold mounts and even solid silver covers. This is really very necessary, for how would it look if the mistress didn't have a more splendid book to take to church than her young maid There needs to be a difference. It's it's, fun. it's amazing how they go on and on and on about you know, the vanity of women going to church with their decorated bindings, their gilt edges and their gold and silver covers. This is mid-century. By the end of the 18th century, the fashions had changed. And the house, a, a, a Dutch manual says, One sees in general that covers that have much gold are less satisfactory than those that have only a little. Almost all French manuals describe gold tooling, using gold leaf over several coats of glare, the last of which is left tacky. They start with the spine, where the compartments are outlined by rolling a small decorative roll or a fillet along the joints and then impressing a pallets at both sides of the bands, twice at head and tail, sometimes adding a wider pallets there, and also impressing one on top of the bands. Bouquets or fleurons are placed in the centre of the compartments. More ornamentation can be added to the edges of the boards and a border tooled on the covers. Biderot's Encyclopédie is an important source for binding equipment and processes. Here you can see the gold being laid on, quite clearly by a woman. She's sitting at the table on the right-hand side. Uh, And it's again interesting, again particularly in France, how the various aspects of the trade were divided between men and women. But women were allowed to lay on gold. Again it's described that the the glass still has to be sticky and that engraved small tools and rolls are impressed what they call reasonably warm. Uh, Rolls apparently were impressed with the help of a straight edge. The well-known Dantel pattern, as we just saw, is described as a design made with flowers or otherwise impressed with a hot tool, with or without gold, following the borders. Sprengel talks about the use of a creaser for lines, and he also talks about brass stamps, engraved in relief and and fitted into wooden handles. Wooden handles are illustrated here on number seven. And then he lists the most commonly used one. He says every binder should have a set or a pair of corners called a French set, a centre tool for the spine compartments of which the binder has to have five in different sizes, pallets, a row, an alphabet of brass letters, a type holder with type and then he specifies that the type holder is used for Titling the spine, while the hand letters are used for adding the owner's name to the covers. According to Duda, the individual owners go to a great deal of trouble and length to have their books decorated and load them, he says, with dotted ornaments or inlaid decoration. but he says. Normally, it is considered sufficient to build the boards along the edges, together with the spine. For the first time, we read about tools known as gold blocks, where one block decorates the outer borders of the covers. All this outer decoration is just one block, while the center, he says, is decorated with another tool, such as a vase or a coat of arms. And such big tools, the blocks and the big arm tools, are applied in a press. The Encyclopédie méthodique also describes this type of tool and how they are fitted with metal pins into holes into layers of card before being put into a press. Dudin's order of tooling the spine is much the same as before, but for the covers, He starts with one or more fillets along the edges, putting a small rosette or flower where they meet at the corners. Sometimes several frames are made with fillets and a vase, a fleuron or a bouquet is set at the corners. You can see here. The spaces between the frames, he says, can be filled with vignettes or fleurons. And then he describes borders and center blocks which are applied in a press. Corner pieces are linked by side pieces. First the long ones, then the ones for the shorter side. And if need be, the spaces between them are filled with smaller tools. And again, if you look carefully at French 18th century bindings, you will very often see that the border decoration Uh, and this is a good example, is not decorated with individual small hand tools, but with blocks that are fitted together. Only one way of decorating is more elaborate, Doudin says, and he calls it gilt onlaying. And he describes how you do it. The design is placed on the covering leather, and I think that probably refers to a paper pattern, because he says it's then traced onto the skin. Pieces of Morocco of different colours, paired very thinly, are applied with flower paste. And then all the onlays and the spaces between them are covered in small gold dots. The outlines of the designs are picked out with a fine gold fillet. He then considers this as an extreme effort, and he comments, these extraordinarily rich decorations are hardly used, other than for works of personal taste and whim. Now, inlays and onlays were of course used much earlier, but their descriptions in the binder's manuals is very unusual. J J H H. Buching, though not a binder himself, wrote in 1785, one of the clearest books um, on how bindings were made and decorated. Now he was lucky because he had the help of a local bookbinder called Friedrich Bartoloméus Wiedemann who also designed the plates for him and whose finishing tools are used as examples, illustrated as examples. Tooling is described again in some detail. It's very interesting, he advises the binder to make his own tools because he says the binder knows how he uses the rolls and how the figures need to close up and follow each other implying that if he does it himself, if he makes the tools himself at least he knows he gets the right thing. To tool the covers, he says, one always starts at a joint tooling the long side first and then the short sides working inwards from the outer edge. The sequence of lines and spaces filled with floral rolls and tools. And he then says, if you use a portrait roll, make sure the heads are the right way up. And then he says you add center blocks, such as those with the portraits of Firston for instance, as you see in the two top compartments, or religious man, as you see in the bottom two compartments. And again step by step. Now what is interesting is that this description really epitomizes the decoration of blind-tooled German bindings from the 16th century onwards, and apparently still in use during the last quarter of the 18th century. Finally. In all cases of tooling with gold leaf, the surplus gold is wiped off and the leather binding can then be glared or lightly greased before being polished with a warm polishing arm. As Seidler states, I quote, there are no limits to the art of bookbinding, only skilled hands and inventive heads. Thank you.
0: will join our inventive head in the first floor staff lounge in Alderman Library for the reception that follows immediately.